Welcome to Sage Against the Machine. I'm Irene Supre. And I'm Sandy Skies. In a world drowning in knowledge, we're seeking wisdom. We're here to explore systems that increase the health and well-being of humanity and the natural world. We'll be in conversation with artists, scientists, tacticians, thinkers, and advocates about solutions to today's polycrisis. Let's get started. Welcome, listeners, to our premiere podcast with our first guest. I want to say that it's not very often that you get to say it's an honor to do something, a pleasure, a joy, lots of fun. Uh, but this actually is an absolute honor uh, to introduce you to our first guest on Sage Against the Machine, Dr. Rianne Eisler. Rianne is a cultural historian, system scientist, attorney, and author known for her work on the partnership and domination models. Her latest book, Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future, literally blew both of our minds. It is an accessible and absolutely brilliant scholarly framework within the emerging biocultural landscape. And I do want to just say that when we first talked about doing this podcast in looking really for hope and map points to a more regenerative future, compassionate future, we looked at each other and said, who do you think our first guest should be? And we both said, Brianne Eisler. <laughs> um, and so I would just like to say it is an honor. Please welcome to our podcast. Dr. Rianne Eisler. Welcome, Dr. Eisler. It's good to see you. We're well, thrilled to have you. you. Yeah. I want to just, I want, as we get started today, we're familiar with your work. I've read almost everything you've written, Chalice and the Blade, uh, Real Wealth of Nations. Like all of your books have given me such an amazing worldview that has shaped my work for the last two decades. But for those who are new to your work, could you just give us a brief overview of sort of how you got here and how you think about and maybe define for us what a domination and a partnership systems are? That's a, a language I understand because I've read your work, but lots of folks are new to it. Well, I'm going to try to make this relatively short because it's quite a question. I have a lot of passion for this work, and this passion goes back to my own early childhood as a refugee child with my parents from the Holocaust. And, of course, there was a lot of trauma, but that trauma led to this work. It led me to questions that really my work was many, many years later, my multicultural, multidisciplinary, cross-cultural uh, cross and uh, Transhistorical research, I mean, a big picture research, uh, was designed to answer. And these questions were when we humans have such a, an enormous capacity for caring, for consciousness, for creativity, why has there been so much insensitivity, cruelty, destructiveness. Is it, as we're often told, you know, whether it's through stories like uh, Original Sin or 
and they fight each other are stories like selfish genes, but it's really the same story, isn't it? We are bad, we are innately very selfish, and all this is impossible to change. There are no alternatives, right? Because that's, quote, human nature. And as you said, especially in this latest book, Drawing from Neuroscience, that is absolutely being disproved by both the social and the biological sciences. And, and my book, on Nurturing Our Humanity, draws a great deal as you know, from neuroscience. But this is what led me to the work. Now, the second part of your your question is going to take a little bit of time. So do you want to say something first? No, no, I was going to bring you to that second part, which is cruelty and compassion. And then you've got domination and partnership, I think. So you can just elaborate on those two thoughts. Well, my my research and really now the research of many others shows that uh, this is a false story that we've been taught, that we are innately uh, bad. And therefore, of course, it does justify a domination system. We have to be rigidly controlled, like from the top, as in God-fearing, right? But what I realized and my research shows that, yes, there is an alternative, but we can't see it through the lenses of conventional studies or conventional social categories like right-left, religious-secular, eastern-western, northern-southern, capitalist-socialist. For one thing, and these are all methodological approaches and studies, that we've inherited from more rigid domination times, because there was a shift in our prehistory from more of a partnership direction. And um, in Nurturing Our Humanity, uh, that is brought out. It's also brought out in all of my other books, because again, we've been told a false story of our past. And the story being that we're inherently violent. We're inherently selfish. We're inherently moving to have our genes dominate everybody else's. That's right. Yeah. That is a false story. And what my, I, my, my research identified are actually, once you connect the dots, okay, and yes, you include the majority of humanity, women and children, and where we all really live in our family and other intimate relations, I introduced through my research what I call the partnership domination social scale, because it's always a matter of degree. But on one end is the domination system, which is a relatively recent phenomenon in the mainstream of our culture, about five to 10,000 years, which is really a drop in the evolutionary bucket, and on the other end is the partnership system. And it starts really in our families, our mm -hmm. economics, mm -hmm. our social 
norms, uh, which are that it's going to be a top-down authoritarian system in not only the state or tribe, but in our economics and, yes, in our families. And the second, which is really ignored in conventional categories, were marginalized completely, as well as in studies, is the importance of gender. How the roles and relations of what are really the two forms, the two basic forms of humanity, the female form and the male form, and of course, we're beginning to, which is a partnership trend, to recognize that there are also many people in between, or at least some people in between. Uh, that is not just a women's issue. It's a primary social and economic and family organizing principle. Right. And the third part of the configuration is really the degree of abuse and violence. Now, in domination system, that whether it is child or wife beating, whether it's pogroms, whether it's uh, lynchings, whether it's uh, warfare, it's built into the system. You know, war and the so-called war of the sexes are not human nature, but they are built into the domination system because how else except the fear of pain, the fear of force. Do you really maintain these rigid rankings of man over man, man over woman, race over race, etc., etc.? Uh, in partnership systems, there is some violence, you know. We sometimes lose it. We, there is some abuse, but it doesn't have to be built into the system. And so there is much less. And finally, stories language very different in those two systems mm -hmm. i mean the stories that we are told are the basic normative stories uh, are still stories that maintain domination systems so we have to pay a lot of attention uh, to the kinds of stories that we internalize and believe which sort of brings us to really how we disrupt this and change this. Because I always say, if you want a better ending, tell a better story. And we have to talk about culturally, really, what is amplifying this dominator system that we're in and how little media really mm -hmm. gets this principle that you're talking about. And I, th I think, question, I, one of the things in the book that I absolutely loved, Rianne, is we have all the evidence in the world of the way that the domination system manifests itself in our cultures and the proof that it exists. And what I loved is the evidence that our nature as caring and compassionate and creative the evidence that that is a genetic trait is actually there. An evolutionary trait. Right, that we, we would not have survived as a species if we hadn't had compassion and care for others than our own offspring throughout human history. We wouldn't have survived. And just the 
revelation or the illumination of that point was like, oh my gosh, absolutely. The proof that that is a true human trait is because it exists in culture and in history. I thought that was brilliant. Well, thank you. Well, you know, it isn't until recently that love has become even an because it was coded feminine, right? You know, the soft emotions with our very, have you noticed how stereotypical gender stereotypes are really a hallmark of domination systems, whether it's the Taliban, uh, you know, religious Eastern or Khomeini's Iran, you know, today's Iran, or whether it's Putin's Russia, or whether it's the rightist, so-called rightist fundamentalist alliance in the United States, they're stuck in these rigid gender stereotypes. And you have to have rigid gender stereotypes because how else are you going to rank one, you know, the male and the, quote, masculine over the female and the, quote, feminine? And we now know that both women and men have an inborn uh, need for caring connection. And I think that's part of the problem, right? Because, because once we begin to define, once we even begin to define a partnership system, these stereotypes start to, you know, manifest and, and work against even the conversation that we're having around it. And I think it's important when I, when I frame anything that I'm talking about around leadership and I talk about your work, which has deeply influenced me, um, and I talk about these characteristics of caring, compassion, communication, cooperation, partnership, I'm always really careful to point out I am not talking about, you know, women ruling the world. What I'm talking about is historically and traditionally feminine leadership qualities or or qualities generally and historically characterized by the feminine, but that there are many men who have come to embrace these leadership qualities, and that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about men are incapable of this and only women embody it, right? Absolutely. And of course, these rigid, rigid gender stereotypes are, as I said, a hallmark of domination systems. But it's so curious, isn't it? When people talk about the Taliban uh, in that connection, they say, well, they're conservative. They're not conservative. They're not conserving a darn thing, except, yes, they are conserving domination hmm. systems. And big time, but uh, it, it is very difficult. And one of the projects, really, that I uh, want to push through the center is to bring together some media people and really present them with this different framework. Because once you get it, as you said, uh, you uh, feel empowered for one thing because you can see what's really happening and what really happened. Right. And you can really connect the dots. And certainly my first book, 
the chalice and the blade, it answered questions that I had in my childhood. Like I always wanted to know, you know, in the Bible it says that henceforth woman will be subservient to man, right? And I always wanted to know what was it like during during this henceforth. <laughs> Nobody wanted to talk about it. <laughs> and and I also wanted to know yeah. why in the story of Adam and Eve, woman asks advice from a snake, from a serpent. <laughs> we don't usually do that. <laughs> well, it wasn't really until my research for the chalice and the blade that I realized that there was a very good reason for this. You know, the snake was not only a symbol of the regeneration of life, you know, because it periodically sheds and mm -hmm. regrows its its skin, but it was a symbol of oracular prophecy. Think about uh, the oracle of Delphi, already in domination-oriented times. It was a priestess working with a python, a pythoness, she mm. was called working, putting herself in an oracular trance. And look at the Minoan so-called goddess or priestess figurines with the snakes. You know, they're obviously in a trance, and they have snakes coiled around their arms. Uh, this is not coincidental. This was the old reality, but the new reality uh, in that story was you don't even think differently, much less act differently, you do as I say, or there will be lots of punishment, lots of pain. And of course, the story of Eve, or of Pandora for that matter, blaming woman, first woman for nothing less than all of man's, right? Ills, it's brilliant. <laughs> it is an, it is an it, amazing story. It to be totally false. Right. Which I just want to cut to. I'm cutting to, in my mind, my 11-year-old self right now, reading the Bible and going, hmm, it, hmm this really makes no, no sense. No sense whatsoever. Yeah. Right, right. Well, and this isn't, I mean, these, the Bible contains many partnership teachings. Yes. Yes. Uh, in fact, at the core of most world religions are partnership teachings, so-called feminine teachings mm -hmm. of caring, compassion, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But then there is this overlay that happened during domination history. And it justifies, I mean, suddenly a pregnant woman, you know, the, the, the body that gives life has to be purified through a male priest. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and I, what I what I think is fascinating about that is when you strip away those labels that we're used to, those binary labels, East West, uh, you know, capitalism, socialism, right? Those those systems, and you peel that back, and you're saying that what is present in all of them is simply a different way of looking at it, which is domination versus partnership. And that that is the universal continuum, the universal system continuum that's present in every other ism, if you will, capitalism, socialism, uh, et cetera. And so, so that for me is freeing because then I'm not stuck in arguing, arguing the case. I'm, I can explore the presence of either partnership or domination and where we are on the continuum 
So for me, it, it feels like a very free, freeing uh, platform. But I well, want it. Can we just do what uh, you won't go? I, I just want to make one where this really connected for me 15 years ago when I first met you and read The Real Wealth of Nations. The way that this, this perspective frames every single part of our lives is, is what we're talking about when we talk about the machine. And that the way that you connected this framework to me to the economics of how the United States works, how capitalism affects us here and globally, this idea that these traditionally soft feminine values, which seems so crazy, compassion, communication, collaboration, cooperation, whatever those are, caring, are not given an economic value in our culture. When you connected that dot for me, it just literally blew my mind. And I remember you saying to me, Irene, you know, if you ask a person what is the most uh, precious thing in their lives, they'll say their children, you know, my children. Well, sure, then by all means, it makes perfect sense to pay a plumber $80 an hour to ream your pipes out and then try to find a childcare provider for minimum wage or less. And just the fact that culturally we have not put in a value on elder care, health care, care, child care, it blew my mind. Right. But when I first wrote The Real Wealth of Nations, just putting care and caring and economics in the same sentence, it was like, oh, and today, and this is a partnership trend. Uh, you know, everybody's talking about care. But you see, you have to change the rules of the game, and you mm -hmm. have to change the reward system. And the reason that we didn't put a value on it was because that women were primarily the providing ones that care, providing That's that right. absolutely. Value. And you know, for for both Marx and for Smith, the work of care, of caring for people, uh, starting at birth, was supposed to be performed for free by a woman in a male-controlled household, so much so that even as late as when Marx wrote, uh, you know, in the 19th century, in the 1800s, uh, you know, in most jurisdictions, women, wives, because most women were wives, I mean, that was really the only avenue open to, quote, good middle-class women, right? They would not sue for injuries negligently inflicted on them. Only their husband could for loss of her services. I can't not laugh. I just, it's, it's so painful. It's not funny. It's just painful. Well, and, and when I say that my life has been like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle coming mm -hmm. together, my legal background, I went to the UCLA School of Law. I practiced law. I wrote a a brief, actually, to the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, arguing that women should be considered persons under the definition of person of the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The 12, you know, there were men now at, at that time. All of these men rejected that argument, but 
uh, friend of the court brief is is designed to educate the course. So when uh, Ruth Ginsburg came along and made a similar argument, they bought it. So it is really a a struggle. But once we see what it is a struggle for, then we and that there is an alternative because you know if we don't have an alternative, why bother? Well, I think it's it's rather interesting because you know you're talking you've added the neuroscience, right? It's interesting because the neuroscience finally caught up with the social science because they could do functional MRIs and actually see that the pleasure center of the brain lights up the biggest when we're in service to others. Not can't, not not food, not sex, not porn, not you know all the you know ways that we think about what might excite a human being. What actually lights up the pleasure center of the brain most is being in service to others. And what I think is sort of fascinating about the neuroscience around it, and I wonder if you could extrapolate a little bit on that, is that we've actually seen trends in men and boys that they're they're spending so much time, so much screen time, gaming and what porn, the number one use of the internet, and they're losing their capacity for to be able to face read. They're losing their capacity to understand what you're feeling. So, their empathy. They're losing. I'm curious yeah. what you what you make of that as we move forward in an ever more complex time, rife with the possibility of violence. And men still in the majority of leadership positions with this trend in that in that neuroscience. Well, you know, it's often us said that it's testosterone, and it may play a part. Although studies show that it's far, far, far from being the cause of male violence. But even if men were more predisposed to violence than women. It would be more reason not to systematically, through stereotypical male socialization, to drum this in uh, through uh, these toys, through these epics uh, that you know are the, the best. games and yeah. the movies yeah. the and the, right and the, the stories and the graphic novels and, and, and the movies and all even of it through memorizing the the dates of battles and wars and who won and who lost. In our history classes, I mean, it is really deeply embedded right. in the system. And so I wrote a book, by the way, called Tomorrow's Children. Yeah. Uh, and it's, on, it's a blueprint for partnership education. And I highly recommended it. I'm going to be doing a course on it. Uh, through the Montessori Foundation that's and Sarasota University. Oh, that's great. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll put a link to it. Yeah, we'll link to that. We'll yeah. link to it. Yeah, when, when I have it, I will give you that. But the thing about it is that we cannot, you know, Einstein said it, that you cannot solve problems with the same thinking, with the same consciousness that created them. And until we leave that very fragmenting consciousness, because if you really think about it, there have been repressive, oppressive, violent uh, societies in every one of the conventional categories, right, left, religious, secular, eastern, western, northern, southern, 
and they all marginalize or ignore nothing less than the majority of humanity. So really, these are not categories that are useful, and yet we're stuck. Mm. And the media reinforces it, the history courses, academia reinforces it, and we reinforce it. So uh, that's why I want to do this program with the media. So I think the media is, is a, that's such a rich territory for creating change. And I think one of the things you, you suggest that we, we have to move away from these sort of punitive and domination based approaches. But I think the question all of us have is what can, what practical steps can we as individuals take and or how might we encourage policymakers, community leaders? I work with corporate leaders. How can we accelerate this shift to a partnership world? What, what are the things, just a handful of steps or things we could do? Well, um, nurturing our humanity ends with what I call four cornerstones. I have written, in fact, there's an article coming out in, in uh, a Journal of the Futurist uh, organization, making the point that we need both tactics and strategies. Yes. And that actually we can see that by looking at those pushing us toward more domination systems backward. Because they have put in enormous amounts of time, of money, of resources, of energy into the strategies, as well as the tactics. And the four cornerstones of the strategies are fundamentals, that fundamentals that either support their foundational to either a domination system or a partnership system. And one of them is childhood and family. Mm. As I said, we have been taught to ignore that in talking about politics. But people like Putin, for example, or the Taliban, or uh, Iran, or the Rightist Fundamentalist Alliance, they get it. I mean, look at all the money that is today being put in by the Rightist Fundamentalist Alliance in the United States, in the red states, into challenging uh, any questioning of gender stereotypes. <laughs> I yes, mean, yes. It is horrendous. Mm -hmm. And they spent enormous amount of money in pushing back the normative ideal for family. And it is a long term. The strategies are long term. So one what do children really learn in a punitive, rigidly male dominated, authoritarian family? Putin gets gets it. He recently lowered the penalty for family violence in Russia. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Why? Because he gets the connection between an authoritarian, rigidly male-dominated, I mean, this is, you know, femicide is huge in Russia. So rigidly, you know, authoritarian, rigidly male-dominated, highly punitive, violent family, and that kind of a state. He gets it. We have got to connect the dots. And we cannot connect the dots as long as we ignore or marginalize childhood and family. 
And the same is true of the second cornerstone, which is gender. As I said, and it really bears repeating, because we've been taught, oh, well, that's just just a women's issue, which is crazy, you know, because the women's movement, the men's movement, I mean, the transgender uh, movement, the LGBT movement are all challenging those gender stereotypes. That's right. These are partnership trends. But as a matter of fact, it is, as I said, a primary family, social, and economic organizing principle. And children see that in the family, how little value is given to the, quote, women's work, right, of caring for people or, for that matter, caring for our Mother Earth. I mean, for both Marx and Smith, uh, nature is there to be exploited, period. Right. It isn't, this is the point I make, and I really want to make it here, it isn't socialism versus capitalism. They both challenge traditions of domination. You know, Smith's, uh, you know, capitalism challenged the so-called control from the top, the mercantilist system of kings and so-called nobles, and then Marx challenged the bourgeoisie, but they both perpetuated this hidden system of gendered values. And it's part of GDP and GNP, so that neither includes the work from dawn to dusk, really, of childcare, of early childcare. Now that more men are doing this work, that's a partnership trend. And so that's the real struggle for our future. And it goes deep. And economics, we have a hidden system of gendered values. Mm. That was so, like I said, that was so profound for me to make that connection. And I'm, I'm curious about this, uh, the non-binary movement. And I'm, I, it, it's actually really clarifying to hear you identify these as partnership trends. And I, I think that's what we can start looking for. Right. Is what are partnership trends? But this movement, I I think the pushback on the non-binary movement is because it challenges binary thought and binary systems and binary solutions, which are all perpetuated by dominator systems. Right. You have to have an either or. Right. So we're going to, to war or we're not. We're going to attack you if you don't or we're not. We're, you know, and I think, and I wonder how that, is that in some way bearing out your framework for dominator and partnership? Well, to some extent, I mean, there are binaries in nature, there's hot and cold, but there are degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, there's light and dark, but there are degrees. There's something in between. But the fear seems to be of allowing those degrees to be expressed in our politics, in our in our gender conforming, in our you know. So uh, I mean, I always say I, I think that there is so much pushback against the non-binary. I mean, against the binary. If you look at it, it's about gender. Yeah, that's what the non-binary system is about. It isn't about binary, it's really more about gender mm -hmm. and about these 
domination-oriented gender stereotypes in which men, men do get some emotions. They get anger and contempt. Well, by the time they're 11, that's all they yeah. have left. Right. Yeah. Right. But they do not get the soft-coded feminine emotions of caring, caregiving, nonviolence. And the fact, as I said, that that's being challenged by the men's movement, by the many men who are today doing fathering the way that used to be, you know, diapering, feeding babies. That was, quote, women's work, right? So you see this point-counterpoint of the pullback, but it's not... I, I I wouldn't say, I mean, certainly you have to recognize degrees. I mean, they're in nature, for goodness sakes, you know, hot, cold, dark light, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's about gender. That is such, um, I want to just dub, put a point on your insight, Rianne, because the idea that the binary, non-binary thinking is isolated on the question of gender is fascinating. And it's because the gender roles, the gender stereotypes no longer work. And I, I honestly think when you illuminate the, the continuum in between, that is a waypoint for someone who may be uncomfortable with the traditional female role they're being asked to play. If all of a sudden I see that there's a continuum between me and a male role, ma a man's role, then I can move that way in the same way that a man, once you realize there's a continuum in gender identity or gender expression, all of a sudden it gives me the freedom to explore my more feminine, typically quote feminine characteristics. So I love this idea that by illuminating the middle, the degrees in between, we give everyone permission to explore their binary identity, the, the role, and then dismantle the rigid roles that are part of that domination system. It's like one thing after the other. You almost have to do, it's a progression. How can I fully absorb a partnership world if I don't understand the own partnership in my own being in a way? But I guess I'm saying I, I, I can see it as, I can see it as permeating other Mm -hmm. other arenas and that's what i think is making is making such a wave they think it's about gender but it really is sort of crumbling a lot of things well um gender is as i said a primary family right. social and economic organizing principle mm -hmm. in both domination system and in partnership systems mm -hmm. because once you recognize gender fluidity once you recognize that women can be leaders and are very good leaders not often i mean i mean not 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 all the time but often yes they are women can be good leaders and are often good leaders and once you recognize that men can be caring i mean i was married to a man who was so caring and so compassionate. And he actually understood that we have to reclaim family. We have to reclaim morality. He made a distinction, David Loy, and I highly recommend his books, between partnership moral sensitivity and dominator moral insensitivity. Mm. 
Well, because it's a punitive morality, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's an insensitive morality. We'd rather spend the money on prisons. I mean, who's that? It's the punitive male head of household, right? But we're not going to spend it on nurturing children, on caring for children, on rewarding that work. Uh Uh-uh. Right. There has been an incredible movement, though. I mean, I do want to point out that, you know, when I was born, my father was an Air Force pilot, was not allowed to be in the room. And just a generation later, almost no father would miss being in the room when his child is born. So we are, you know, we are moving in some ways, uh, and there is opportunity to move in, in a positive partnership direction. And that's what we love about your work, is it's so hopeful. Well, it is hopeful, but see, for many people, even so-called people who consider themselves progressive or liberal or whatever the label, uh, it's just a women's issue. It's just a gender issue. And I can't repeat this enough. It's a primary family, social, and economic organizing principle. And you see that uh, in, 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 in our metrics. I mean, we at the Center for Partnership Studies have sought funding and we have done some work on what we call social wealth economic indicators, which show the economic value of caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems for our quote mother earth. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we we don't have those metrics. I mean, for example, uh, a tree which we depend upon, you know, for breathing, right, for oxygen, mm-hmm. is only part of GDP and GMP when it's dead, when it's a log. Right. I mean, that's insane. Mm-hmm. And and yet, activities that actually hurt life, take life, selling cigarettes selling fast foods and the medical bills, the funeral bills that that causes, they're part of GDP. So, I mean, global warming, hey, part of GDP are the costs of reconstruction after the effects. I mean, it's a crazy metric. It's such a crazy metric. It's an absolutely crazy metric. And so we really are seeking funding for uh, influencing, there, there are lots of other metrics, but they mostly give us a snapshot of what is, of quality of life. Mm-hmm. And they don't show the economic value of caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems. Mm-hmm. And we need those metrics, and we need them in the in the so-called GDP alternatives. Well, there's a pretty there's a pretty basic equation, which is raise the status of women and girls, and you raise the status of an organization, a city, a nation, the world, mm-hmm. right? So you actually recommended to incoming President Barack Obama that he develop some kind of cabinet level position for the issues of girls and women. And for the first time in U.S. history, the White House did that, and they created an office for uh, a cabinet-level position on women and girls that Valerie Jarrett chaired. 
And I wonder if you, is this push toward the media changing the narrative? Is that a, an entryway into getting our political system to move in this direction too? Absolutely. It is very important that, first of all, that we stop pitting one against the other. I mean, you were talking about so-called cis, and I hate that because, I mean, why, why have a sort of a pejorative term for people who are the majority of humanity, really? Or the other way, you know, the, the cis-trans, you know, the cis against the trans. It, it is not necessary, uh, but we have been taught to fight one another. And we've got to stop it. And this is what this new language helps us do. Right. Mm, yeah, that's what I was trying to get to. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> because if we change our language, if we change our story, we can change the ending. And that's, that's the thing that we're trying to do here is find those new ways of framing our experience that allows us to create something new. And that's what I love about this language of if we move into partnership and away from domination in every aspect, in every story, in every narrative, that's how we're going to create change. You know, as storytellers, we know narratives matter. And in the book, you talk a lot about we have centuries millennia of stories of essentially domination, the epic battles, the even some of the hero's journey are all about vanquishing something. Absolutely. And that's Absolutely. that's a domination story of which Absolutely. we we need a new story. So what's But if the, you don't see the story, that's the whole thing, right? Exactly. It's like the Wizard of Oz when the curtain gets pulled back and right. everybody in the audience goes, Oh, these are the awakenings that we're we're trying to help amplify and accelerate. And Rianne, you are such a brilliant, brilliant person to help people understand it. Well, I highly recommend uh, an online course offered uh, by the Center for Partnership Systems, and it's called Changing Our Story, Changing Our Lives. Mm, and there okay. are four videos that I did for it. Tons of resources. It starts with where we are. The second video is how we got here, which is a really fascinating story, and we have evidence of it. The third video actually foreshadows a lot of what uh, the neuroscience now shows. And of course, the fourth video is the four cornerstones. Wonderful. And I really highly recommend going putting in changing our story, changing our lives, and taking that course. And I think that uh, I, I recommend it to both of you, as a matter of fact. We're like, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, I've got to go. You know, Rianne, I do just want to say that part of the reason that Sandy and I decided to do this was that we were finding ourselves, I think I shared this with you when I asked you if you would do this show, uh, we were finding ourselves, I don't want to say hopeless, but not very hopeful right now. And I know a lot of people in this poly crisis are feeling that way. People who've been at this work for a long time, uh, 
And I wonder how you're feeling uh, right now and what, what sort of map posts you've seen out there that give you hope. Well, I think things may get worse before they get better. In the United States, we have a close presidential election, and Trump has made it very clear that he plans to be a dictator, a dominator. In fact, he said it's all about domination, because for people who are stuck in that, and they're traumatized people, by the way, and that's something that uh, is dealt with in nurturing our humanity, as you know, how even the so-called ACES studies, the Adverse Childhood Experiences studies, show that even in the United States, the prevalence of trauma is horrendous, and it starts trauma in families. In fact, there was a recent interview of me for the Scientific American, which you might also want to give as one of the resources. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. search for Rian Eisler, Scientific American, because it's quite recent, and yet you'll find it. Uh, we have an opportunity now. It is, yes, it's a crisis, but it's also an opportunity. And, you know, people ask me, I'm optimistic. Well, of course, I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't know that there is an alternative. On the other hand, uh, in the short term, what will happen? I know in the long term that the domination system is reaching its logical end. And that's not a pretty picture at all. I mean, between climate change, uh, the return of the strong man, you know, not only in the United States, but, you know, Orban and uh, et cetera, the Hamas. I mean, you know, it, it is one of those things. But uh, we have to persevere. And that is all I know, is perseverance. And get it out, because at some point, at least for people who aren't too traumatized, there's this, well, what happened to you? Awakening. An awakening and a, and a roadmap forward. Right. Like that's where I think we've come to, to really meet your work. That it is a logical, loving, compassionate way forward. And I, for one, am so grateful to have been able to work with you and As you and and live in the time you live in, Rian. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Well, thank you for doing this. And I think that an interview that you are doing, these interviews, can help people to really have this aha moment. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. So that's what it is. That's what uh, it is. But it is. you do need to take into account, as I said, the majority of humanity, women and children. And then once you do that, you can connect the dots. And these are not dots. I mean, they're huge. Well, I hope you'll think about coming back through the year. I think we have might more we might have more to talk about after the election. <laughs> And and as we move forward, I, I, I think people feel like it might be inevitable that we are heading into another world war, and that's maybe where we always end up. And your work is proof that that is not true. That's right. So thank you very much, Dr. Eisler. Dr. Eisler's latest book, Nurturing Our Humanity, is available wherever you get your books. To learn more about Rianne's work and for resources on a partnership world, Go to centerforpartnership.org. 
check out Rianne's, all of Rianne's work at her website, RianneEisler.com. Thank you, Rianne. So lovely to see you. Thank you both. Wow. That was amazing. Can I first start by saying at 95, she is the embodiment of a living map point of hope. Like just listening to her gives me such hope. And I am, I'm just blown away by how smart she is. Well, and we should all be at 95 as, you know, cognitively brilliant as, as Dr. Eisler is. But I mean, the fact that she's still looking at new, at new disciplines of research, like adding the neuroscientist, right. it, it's just unbelievable. Also, to me, this proves the, the resiliency and the, and the brilliance of her dominator to partner continuum. Theory of, her of theory change. Of change. Yeah. Because it can absorb all of the changes we're seeing in our world right now. The fact that she could tell us how she sees this exploration of the non-binary as a partnership, a sign we're moving toward a partnership, says to me that there, this is real, this is true, it's a truth, it is a framework for understanding what's happening because it can hold and absorb the changes we're seeing. And we're in the midst of a polycrisis and massive social and environmental change, and her system can help us make sense of it. And in some ways, really predicted. I mean, if you think about it, was, right. could really see it as almost prescient about where we would have to go to be able to embrace partnership models, right? you know? Uh, I think she it, said- it almost couldn't go any other way. If we're talking about the gender binary and binary you know, non-binary thought and... Right. And and the idea of the dominator system. She said something um, about the domination system is coming to its close as a a system that can even be useful in any way. Well, I mean, that's the the regressive uh, moment that we're in, right? right? That we're actually rescinding rights that have been in place for decades. And there's a lot of, remember I talked with, I was in conversation with John Perry Barlow uh, over a TEDx talk he was going to do. And he said to me, um, I said, what's the title of your talk? And he said, Locked in the Closet with a Dying Dinosaur. And I said, well, what is it about? And he said that two systems are coming to a close and they're not happy about it. And it was patriarchy and, and oil. It was fascinating. And I think that's exactly what Dr. Eisler's talking about that, you know. Right. And for me, I mean, we're all aware that we're in the midst of this. We don't have, I think we've lacked well, a language. We're aware we're in the middle of something. something. Exactly. But I think she articulates She gave us that, a language yeah. and a framework for making sense of it, understanding it. And for me, as a map point towards a regenerative future, this idea of looking for hope. She said, we, we will move towards a partnership. It is an inevitability because the human species can't survive it. And in that the, was the host, most hopeful thing. Yes, to me, I that agree. That we are not inherently yeah. destined. We are not predestined to war. Right. And, you know, and into selfishness. Perpetuity. Right. That we have 
you know, the inherent qualities of compassion and collaboration and community. And in fact, that's what we're wired for. And that's how we got this far. Reframing the narratives, as she talked about, like the media reframing things, us, the way we teach families Mm -hmm. reframing things, that is, you know, that's a heavy lift, I'm going to say. But you can see the direct correlation between cause and effect if we could get to that place where we redefine that narrative without these gender norms and stereotypes that that lead us to the same place right. over and exactly. over and exactly. over again. And she she gave us the signs of hope, right? She talked about the fact that fathers are more involved in their child's care and and the fact that we're seeing other other signs of the partnership world emerging. So it was a great conversation. I it left was, I left hopeful. Yeah, she calls herself a an optimistic realist. That's what she calls herself. I love that. And I think that's, you know, I'll yeah, take that I'm lab- aiming for that. I'll take that label. <laughs> yeah. On to the next one, Irene. On to the next. Sage Against the Machine. Thank you for being part of the Sage Against the Machine community. If you were inspired, intrigued, or activated by our discussion, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Stay connected with us on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates, behind-the-scenes content, and to share your thoughts on today's topic. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or concepts you'd like us to cover, feel free to reach us at our website, sageagainstthemachine.com, for additional resources and exclusive content. Until next time, stay hopeful. The evidence of change is out there. Thanks for joining us as we Sage Sage Against against the the Machine. machine. We'll see bright.